Good morning, Crossroads, and welcome to Sunday morning. We are the Crossroads Kids team, and we have some exciting information to share with you guys. Um, we have some great changes that are coming up. Um, Lindsay and I, as you guys know, have been working in Crossroads Kids Ministry for 16 years. And um, in the past few months, the Lord just made it really clear that um, it's time for us to step down. And so he's provided some amazing people um, to come and take our place. So most of you have already heard from Hannah Vandervelde, if you've been watching Facebook. Um, she's been doing an amazing job posting things for Crossroads Kids, and we are just so confident that Hannah is not only going to be able to replace us, but take it to the next level. She's got an amazing passion for kids, and um, her whole family is involved, and we are just really, really thankful for God's provision with Hannah. She's been actually working with us for quite a while, um, since she was at Trinity and um, even before that. So she is well steeped in the ways of kids' ministry, and she's just an amazing um, provision of the Lord. And then we have Jess, who's our newest member, who you may not know yet, because Jess is going to take over Lindsay's position. So you'll be hearing from her in emails and on Facebook as well. And to be honest, I had the privilege of being a part of the interviews for Jess in the past couple weeks, and she is way overqualified for what she's going to be doing. And so we are just really, really thankful that because of her passion for kids and her love for the kingdom of heaven and seeing kids on mission, she has agreed to be a part of our team. So I'm going to let um, both Hannah and Jess share a little bit from their hearts, but um, we're just really thankful that you guys are with us and we're super excited to see what God's going to do. Yeah, I just want to say on behalf of all of Crossroads Kids, really, just uh, we're so thankful for the work that you guys have sewn in to the kingdom and the next generation. Uh, you guys built this thing from the ground up and just thinking about carrying tubs and the beginning days at Walker. And I just know that it's a lot of thankless weeks. So I just wanna say thank you on behalf of people who have kids in the ministry that have been blessed and on behalf of all the parents out there. Um, yeah, and I also just wanna say that my husband John and I are just really excited to step into this ministry. Um, we both just really love kids and uh, are just really excited for what God is going to do in this ministry and what we get to be a part of. We feel just very excited. So, thank you. I couldn't echo that any better. Um, we have some pretty big shoes to fill, and Hannah and I are very excited just um, with the example that we had before us. And we do love your kids, and we're passionate about kids. So, um, Paul is my husband, and he's also now part of the team, he knows. And we just really can't wait to serve you and just introduce our kids to Christ. Well, I know I can speak for Lindsay, right, Lens? Yep. Lindsay doesn't love public speaking, but I know I can speak for Lindsay and say it's been a joy. It's been 16 years of pure joy to walk alongside your families and nurture your kids. And speaking of nurturing your kids, happy Mother's Day, um, everyone at Crossroads. Um, we recognize that today can be a day where um, it can be difficult. So if you are watching right now and you are in one of those positions where you maybe lost a mom this year or you have a strained relationship with your mom or maybe you are desperate to be a mom and the Lord hasn't provided that for you yet, we just want you to know that we weep with those who weep. Um, ever since the exit from the garden, God has put a mandate on women when he named Eve, Eve. And Eve means the mother of all living. And if you know anything about the Hebrew world, when someone is named something, it's to be their destiny. So all of women are to be the mother of all living. 
So if you're in that painful position, or if you're in a great position where you have an awesome mom and you've been able to rejoice throughout your life in the blessing that she's been, either way, as a church, we're the kingdom of priests, and as women, we are the mother of all living. So all of you, whether you're a biological mom or not, have the opportunity to nurture spiritually, physically, and emotionally the whole body of Christ. So I just want you to be able to have an opportunity today to reach out and thank the women in your life who have nurtured you. Maybe that is a biological mom, or maybe it's a friend that has been more than enough for you in the sense that she's nurtured you and provided for you. Or maybe it's a mentor who's spiritually been a great mother to you. Or maybe it's an adoptive mom who's taken you under her wing. Whatever that is, maybe it's an aunt who's been a mom to you. Or maybe it's a Sunday school teacher. Or maybe it's just a school teacher. Let's take this opportunity today to reach out to all the women in our lives who have nurtured us, loved us, and grown us spiritually. Speaking of the women in our lives and the people who have nurtured us, we're gonna take an opportunity right now to hear from some of the smallest members of our community and what they think about their moms. My mommy, the nicest mommy. She helps me whenever I get hurt. She hugs me, she smooches me, and she's so sweet. I love my mom because she's smart, she's beautiful, and she cares for us. And she just loves us so much. And I think that's a great gift. And I'm glad that Jesus could put me in um, her family. Some things I love about my mother, let's see, there's a lot of them. Um, she loves to do things with us. And she's open to putting stuff down whenever she like, if ever I ask her to play a game, she'll just put it down immediately and just play it with me. Some things I love about my mother are that she likes to read with me and that she likes to bike with me. My favorite thing about mom is when she gives good snuggles. My favorite thing about my mom is how much effort she puts into taking care of us. I love mom because she tucks My mom plays games with me, and she, she is really beautiful. On Mother's Day, um, Mommy cooks us food, and she makes food for us. I love my mom because she cleans our house up and takes care of us. I like that Mama gives me hugs all the time. I love that mom lets me play on her bed and, um, and sing a silly song. I love my mom. Hi, mom, I love you. <laughs> um, but the one thing that I really love about you, mom, is just how selfless you are. Uh, it really means a lot to me, and you have been an inspiration to me. And I'm forever thankful for you and all that you have done for me. Also, happy Mother's Day to all the mothers in my life. Love you all. Oh, that was so awesome. All right, family, we get a privilege this morning again to 
stand and join together in song and worship. And I know that that looks different than it used to uh, here on Sunday mornings, but our hearts and our spirits are the same. They're with you. And so wherever you're at this morning, why don't you stand with us? Get your kids around and let's, let's sing together. Here we go. He became sin who knew no sin that he might become his righteousness. He humbled himself. He carried the cross. His love so Lord of 
God, I'll sing of all you've done. This swallowed up forever by the fury of your love. There you stepped into my Egypt. You took me by the hand. You marched me out of freedom. You know, that's the story of Israel and how God led his people out of captivity in Egypt. But each one of us has been delivered and brought into his freedom, brought into that promised land. And so with worship and thanksgiving in our hearts this morning, Jesus, we say thank you. Thank you for stepping into our lives, revealing yourself to us. Thank you for leading us along like a good shepherd. Thank you for your word how it's such a, a firm foundation for us, Lord. And we just ask that as we open up our Bibles today, would you help us open up our hearts as well so that that seed, that good seed, could fall on soil that is receptive, that your word could be planted in our hearts to bear fruit for your kingdom, Jesus. Thank you. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Come on up, Rod. Thanks, you guys. We're grateful. Yeah, happy Mother's Day. I'm very grateful today for my mom. Such a gift. Thank you, Mom. And then God gifted me through marriage with another amazing mom. And uh, yeah, I say this with humility. I just feel this embarrassment of riches to um, have that in my life. We are most grateful. And Libby, uh, happy Mother's Day to you as well. Before we uh, dive into God's word, we're getting a lot of questions just about when is Crossroads going to gather on Sunday mornings for worship? And none of us really know the answer to that question, but let me just let you into our minds, or at least my mind, uh, when it comes to this. First of all, we love this season that we're in. The things that we have taught and pushed into our family, that God has pushed into us about what the church is. I don't think there has been a season where Crossroads has better lived into that. Uh, than this one right now. I feel like I'm not on. Am I on? Oh, I am good. Okay. Gosh, after all these weeks, you'd think we'd have this ready by now. Um, but anyway, like, we love this season. 
uh, we're not chomping at the bit to have to get back to Sunday morning as much as we love Sunday morning. Uh, However, let me just also say this. We also don't want to be the church that when you look at history, sometimes the church would, rather than being the church, conform itself to the state that it was under. And so these are things that are going to require great discernment. Crossroads is not going to go alone on anything that we decide to do. Um, there, we, we believe in the one church at Grand Rapids. There are lots of conversations right now that are beginning to happen uh, at that level. And so we will just continue uh, to, to keep you communicated and updated on this. But until then, let's embrace this season. Let's seize the moment um, and, and live out the kingdom of heaven the way we've talked about it as a kingdom of priests, past, pastors, missionaries, uh, 90, 10, 90% of who we are. Now it's 100% of who and what we are is outside of a Sunday morning gathering. Let's just go for it. Okay. We are in John's gospel, and we are still in John chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, this would be a great time to get it. Turn to John chapter 5. I'm going to, beginning, I'm going to begin reading at verse 31. Again, if you want to stand, you can stand or you can sit. Uh, just don't bend it. If you're how you were last week at this time, sit up at least. If I testify about myself, this is Jesus talking. My testimony is not valid. There is another who testifies in my favor. And I know that his testimony about me is valid. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it, that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony even weightier than that of John. For the very work that the Father has given me to complete, and which I am doing, that too testifies that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. me. You have never heard his voice, nor have you seen his form, implying that Jesus has. Nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one that he sent. And you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept praise from men. But I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name, and yet you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe if you accept praise from men, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? Do not think I will accuse you before the Father, because Moses will. He is your accuser on whom your hopes are set. But if you really believed Moses, you would believe me, for Moses wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, 
how are you going to believe what I say? So just by way of review here, John is, or Jesus is in Jerusalem for a Jewish feast. We don't know which one. John doesn't mention it. But these feasts brought Jews from all over the world to Jerusalem, maybe the way NFL fans descend upon the Super Bowl. And it's in this setting where Jesus heals a man. A man who's been paralyzed for 38 years. <laughs> this in and of itself would be stunningly awesome. Jesus simply speaks to him, arise, take up your mat, and walk. The man goes straight into where all the action is taking place, into the temple, and now the, the drama is going to intensify. It's Sabbath, and he's carrying his mat. And we're like, so? You know that guy walking around Costco or Meyer or the grocery store with no mask, getting that stink eye from so many people? <laughs> Trust me, I know this guy really well. This guy walking around carrying his mat on the Sabbath is 10 times more offensive. In fact, in verse 10, it tells us the temple police come. What are you not wearing your mask for? I'm sorry. Um, what are you doing with that mat in your hands? The man responds, he made me do it. It's his fault. And they're like, who? What man? And he's like, I don't know. This man is in serious trouble. But he's bailed out by Jesus because Jesus finds him, and that's, this is not by accident. And once the man knows who to blame, he immediately reports Jesus to the Jews. So look at verse 16. It says, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began, began to persecute him. First, let me talk about the Jews. John uses this often in his gospel. It's not all Jews. In fact, actually, every time John says the Jews, he has in mind this small select group of Jews. It's the Jews who have the official power, namely the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the Jewish Supreme Court consisting of 70 Supreme Court justices. Let me just show you just a few things of, of what this would look like in Jesus' day. Uh, there was a Supreme Court building. And if you notice where it is, it's right there uh, in the temple complex in its heart. Because they run the temple. And in terms of the spiritual and moral life of Israel, they are the law. Their interpretations, verdicts, judgments are the final word. And what is their rule of law? What is their constitution, their bill of rights? It's the Torah. It's the first five books of the Bible. Co-authored by Moses and God. So when verse 16 says that these guys persecuted Jesus, the actual word here is prosecute. Jesus is on trial. And he's brought into this courtroom to stand before this court of supreme court justices. And what's the charge? Blasphemy, which is punishable by death. This is the context of our text today. I don't know if you've ever been in the situation where you've had to stand 
in court before a judge. I have. <laughs> uh, when I was a youth pastor in Indianapolis, I think I was 25 years old at the time, I was driving on expired Michigan plates. So I was brought to court, stand before a judge, and he just exploded on me. He read me the riot act, five whole minutes. At the end of it, he's saying, you know, do you know that I, I might have to send you to jail? <laughs> and I'm just right now thinking at that time, um, wow, <laughs> news of the day, youth pastor goes to jail. Um, that was just a small court before a little judge. Our text, this is the Jewish Sanhedrin. This is the supreme court of the land. And when you read John 5, you see that Jesus is in total control of the courtroom. Three times he says, truly, truly, I say to you. When you see truly, truly, I say to you, that's literally in that world like taking a guy by the, by the neck and say, you listen to me. He calls himself the son the Son of God, the Son of Man. And when we hear these terms, we think of Jesus' relationship with God, which these terms do spell that out, but these are technical terms. These are titles for the coming Messiah. It would be like saying the President of the United States times 10. And they're all birthed out of their scriptures. The Son, read Psalm 2 today. It goes something like this, as the politicians scheme and the rulers of the world make their plans, the Lord sits up there and he laughs and he scoffs. And then he says, see, I have set my king on my holy hill. And he is my son and I am his father and the nations will be his. And it ends with, kiss the feet of the son, lest he be angry. Or what about the son of man Jesus uses? We talked about this. This is Daniel 7, 13 and 14. This, this man, king, who God says, I'm giving you dominion over all peoples, over all nations forever and ever. And look at verse 27. Jesus says, and he has given him, referring to himself, authority to judge because he is the son of man. In other words, he just turned the tables. You're not the judge. I'm the judge. I'm not the accused. You're the accused. That's why Brian last week killed it. He was dead on. This text is about the authority of Jesus. And now our text today, Jesus ends this trial by making his defense. He presents his witnesses before this court 
In verses 33 to 35, he starts with John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the biggest deal going on at this time. People are literally calling him the Elijah who is to come. They're flocking out to see him. And yet, Elijah, when they come and hear him, all he does is point everybody to Jesus and say, there he is. There's the king. Then Jesus says, and my other witness, just, just look at my life, my works, the things that I'm doing. The lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear. And then he boldly brings God into this thing as his witness. And it's like he's poking the bear because he doesn't just say God. He calls God his father, which is the very charge that has brought Jesus to stand before them. And then Jesus ends his defense with the witness of the Hebrew scriptures. It's what we call the Old Testament today because they didn't have a New Testament at at this time. The Old Testament is their Bible and it was the final authority. Moses wrote it. God inspired it. It's the very words of God. And Jesus before this court has the audacity to say, These scriptures testify about me. They are about me. And in verse 46, he says, if you actually believed Moses, who's the author of this text, you would believe in me. Why? For Moses is writing about me. Now let me start with this question. It's a pretty important one. What is your view of the Bible? Do you have beliefs, convictions about this book? Now, over the years, like throughout church history, this question has created a lot of division in the church. One denomination says the Bible is this. Another denomination will say the Bible is this. One group of Christians believe this about the Bible. Another group of Christians believe this about the Bible, but to cut through all the chase, I think the best place to start is what did Jesus himself think about the scriptures? What was his attitude towards the Bible? Because I think we'd all agree that whatever Jesus' attitude is, whatever his view is, whatever his convictions are, that's what ours should be. Let me give you just a little bit of background here that I think is important. Jesus was raised in a culture where kids as young as five are immersed in the scriptures. It was their history, it was their civics, their poetry, their literature, it was their constitution, but most of all it was God's word. And so the goal for every kid was to have the book memorized by age 12 or 13. In fact, the book that they started with at age five was the book of Leviticus. The psalmist says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. (laughs) To hide the word of God in our hearts is literally to memorize it. Because imagine right now, for you to have a Bible that you would have to fork out about $300,000 to have one. Because that's what it would have been in Jesus' day. They didn't have 20 Bibles just floating around their house. Their town had a Bible, and that Bible would have been located in the synagogue. 
So the way each person then would have their own copy of God's word is they'd memorize it. I know part of you are saying there's no way they could do this. Well, let me just ask this question. How many songs or movies or Netflix shows do you have memorized? Remember, this is a world that didn't have social media, Netflix, pop music, didn't have sports, sports stars. Their top 40 was the text. Their heroes were the heroes in their story. In fact, when Jerome, the church father, uh, translated the Bible into Latin, just a few centuries after Jesus, he went to Bethlehem to learn the Hebrew, and he was blown away. He said, I cannot find a Jewish child who doesn't know the entire Bible by heart. Or think about the first psalm. It says this, Blessed is the one who does not walk in the step with the wicked or stand in the way of that of the sinners or take or sit in the company of mockers but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. That word law is the Torah. And who meditates, who meditates on his Torah day and night. It's not an accident that this is the first psalm. It's purposeful to show the preeminence of God's word in our lives. In fact, this word meditate here, it literally means to devour. In Isaiah 31 verse 4, it says, as a lion growls, a great lion over its prey. That's the same word for meditate. Is this how we approach the book? I remember years ago, Dean Vandermeer came to our church and he preached. And we, we, we still talk about it to this day. Uh, his Bible, I mean, it was, it was the most worn out. I, I didn't even know how he made it through the sermon. The thing was in such shambles. Uh, and on every page, you could just see that <laughs> note upon note. And then at some point in the sermon, he lifted his Bible up and said, if your Bible doesn't look like this, your life will. Devouring the text was the goal of every Jewish kid in Jesus' day. Mary, when the angel of the Lord came to her to tell her that she was going to be the mother of the Messiah, probably just a young girl of 13 or 14, read her response in Luke chapter 1. She's quoting text after text, stringing them together like, like pearls. She knows the text. I bet my entire life on the fact that Jesus has the text memorized. Because remember that story of Jesus in the temple? during the granddaddy of all feasts, Passover, 12 years old, holding court with the most famous rabbis of his day. And those rabbis were utterly amazed at Jesus' understanding of the text. When Jesus faces temptation, how does he combat Satan? He says, it is written, Satan. It is written, it is written. He just throws the word of God at Satan. How often in Jesus' life and ministry does he explain himself, his teachings and the things that he does 
by saying according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures. Everything Jesus says and does is rooted in the scriptures. When Jesus is arrested and Peter pulls out his sword and cuts the guy's ear off, Jesus says, stop that, Peter. Don't you know that all of this must happen according to the scriptures? When he's carrying his cross, he turns and looks at some women. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. And he quotes Hosea. It is written. On the cross, what's coming out of his mouth? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Into your hands I commit my spirit. It's the text. The text is the operating principle of Jesus' life. It's the authority that he submits to with every fiber of his being. Someone once said, if you stabbed Jesus, what would flow out would be the text. He knew the text. He loved the text. He lived the text. He taught the text. He prayed the text. He placed himself in the text, under the text. He bled the text. He died the text. He was consumed with the text. I hear so many people today say, I really like Jesus. But all this Bible stuff, I can just do away with all that. I'll be the first to say, I, I understand that there are some hard things in this book. Things that don't jive with our world, things that don't sit well with our culture, things that will seriously confront how we think, how we live. But think about what it means to be in a real relationship with a real person. And I'm thinking about my wife today. It's Mother's Day. And no one loves me like Libby, supports me, believes in me. I mean, she's the wind in my sails in so many ways. But no one challenges me, confronts me, even contradicts me like Libby. Because that's what it, it means to be in a real relationship with a real person. I didn't marry a robot. I married a person, an amazing person. So when you and I cast part of the Bible aside because we don't, we don't like that or we don't like that or, or we cherry pick the parts that we do like, don't you understand that we're no longer in relationship with a real God? This week someone sent me the song, The Blessing. It's going around right now. It's such an amazing song. It's actually to song what, what, what I and some of the pastors say at the end of uh, every Sunday morning, the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face to shine upon you. And it, it gets to this part where it says, may his favor be upon you to a thousand generations and to your children and your children's children. And this week I was actually listening to this song as I was jogging and it was in a very, it was on the belt line where there were a lot of cars and I, I just kind of got caught up in this song and I just started skipping <laughs> and skipping and then dancing. And I literally, now listen, you, could, you might think, did he dance like David? I, I did keep my clothes on. They stayed intact. Uh, but I looked at the cars passing me when I was kind of through this and they're like, what is this freak doing? 
But those, those songs, like, they resonate in my heart. But can I also accept what both the Old Testament and the New Testament say when it says things like, God disciplines those he loves as a father does his son. In fact, that word for discipline is even stronger than that. It's the word chastise. God chastises those he loves. Or think about Jesus at the, at the wedding of Cana, just filling their tables with the best wine. I mean, we love that. But then the next story, Jesus is in a rage and he's overturning these tables. The same Jesus. See, if God can't confront you or contradict you or challenge you, chastise you, then you're God, you're Jesus. There's probably nothing but an imaginary friend. Let me push this further. How can we say we love Jesus and not love what Jesus loved? Jesus loved the book. How can we be about Jesus? How can we be passionate for Jesus and not be passionate about what Jesus was passionate about? He ate and drank this book. How can we even submit to Jesus and not submit to the scriptures that Jesus submitted his entire life to? And if Jesus had such a high view of the text, shouldn't we? How can we say that we follow Jesus and yet at the same time push aside the operating principle of his life? I mean, that would be the height of hypocrisy, the height of fake. See, unless we have Jesus' view of the book and his love for the book, we aren't following Jesus. We're following someone we call Jesus. Now, Jesus in this courtroom is talking to people who have this view of Scripture. So when Jesus says to this court in verse 39 that you study the Scriptures diligently, I think you could say nobody in all of history studied the text, knew the text, like the people that Jesus is talking to. But it's into this where Jesus also says, verse 37, you have never heard God's voice. Or verse 38, you do not have his word abiding in you. Verse 42, you do not have the love of God in your heart. How can Jesus say this? Well, I just addressed those of us with a low view of Scripture. Let me address those of us with a high view. See, a dangerous, subtle thing can occur in our hearts with the best things in life. Things like God, the pursuit of God, worshiping God, learning his word, walking his word out, giving to the poor, helping those in need. This subtle shift can take place in our hearts where instead of doing these things for the glory of God, we start to do these things for our own personal glory. 
That's what's going on here. Look at verses 41 and 44. Jesus says, I do not accept glory from human beings, implying that you do. And then he says, how can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but you do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? All they were seeking was the praise of men. And why do they love the text? It's not because they love God. They think they love God, but they really just love themselves. So they study it for personal glory to exalt themselves, to be right in the argument. And listen to this. And to use God as, God's word as a weapon. They weaponize it. Now this is Dan Mike. This punched me this week. When he said what I'm going to say right now. The Bible is a powerful weapon. Paul calls it the sword of the spirit. The prophets call it a double-edged sword because it cuts, it tears open. It is a powerful weapon, but who is it to be used on? Is it to tear up others? Absolutely not. It's meant to tear you up, me up. It's to cut us to the heart so God can do open heart surgery on us. Yet look at these religious leaders. They, they are brandishing this weapon, first against a lame man who has just been healed. They don't even bother to celebrate. He's walking. All they say is, you're carrying your mat. Then they weaponize it against Jesus. Jesus, you didn't follow Sabbath just the way that we said you need to do it. Let's kill him. How many of us today use the Bible this way? I mean, why are we so critical? Why are we so condemning of, towards people for the mats that they're carrying? How often do we then use also the Bible to justify these critical attitudes, our condemning posts, our judgmental thoughts and words? Do we too use the Bible to exalt ourselves? Do we use it as a weapon to cut down others? This is why Jesus says, you study the scriptures thinking that you have life in them. See, here's where they went so wrong. They were wrongly thinking that if I know this book well enough and I walk it out to such perfection, then I will have favor with God. And see, what they were doing then is they were making the text and, and, and the study of the text all about them which then produced in them this self-righteousness and self-importance. This book is not about us. It's not here to exalt us or to make us the hero. From cover to cover, the book is about Christ. He is the hero. And see, that, that's why there's two ways that we can approach this book. You can approach it where it's all about you. So you come to the stories. Take a good story like David and Goliath. 
and you read it and you say, ah, if David can slay Goliath, and if I have enough faith and I try hard enough, then the giants in my life will fall. And you read all the stories this way, all the miracles, all the healings, so you can be the hero. So you can exalt yourself and save yourself, heal yourself. And I'll say this, at first, this approach can be incredibly satisfying, inspiring. But as time goes on, it'll either turn you into a self-important, self-righteous Pharisee, or it'll crush you. Mark Twain, throughout his life, had this reoccurring nightmare. This was his nightmare. He would dream of the Bible, this huge book, just on him, crushing him, suffocating him. You know, this nightmare was, was, was Martin Luther's real-life nightmare his whole young life. The Bible just crushed him. Because when we read the Bible this way, it, it eventually will crush us. But there's another way to read the Bible. Jesus says, these scriptures are about me. R Moses wrote about me. In fact, the best theological treatment of what I'm talking about. Right out of here. The children's storybook Bible with the subtitle, Every Story Whispers His Name. What is the Bible? Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules, telling what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best, but the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you the people that you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible really aren't heroes at all. They make some pretty big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid, they run away. At times, they're downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a faraway country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. Yes, you see, the best thing about this story is it is true. And it takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of this story, there is a baby. And every story in this Bible whispers this baby's name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly you can see the beautiful picture. This book, from cover to cover, is about Jesus. And every story whispers his name. Think about it. He wrote it so he could place himself in it, so we could read it, and we could find him and know him and have a real relationship with a real God and not just be informed, but transformed. There are hundreds of examples I'd love to show you, but since it's Mother's Day, let me take you to a great story. 
And I'll read this to prepare our hearts for communion. This was my daughter's favorite story in this growing up. Every woman, every girl, and every person should know this story and the God of this story. There once were two sisters. The youngest sister was very beautiful. Her name was Rachel. But the older sister wasn't beautiful. In fact, some thought her to be quite ugly. Her name was Leah. Rachel was the kind of girl who always got invited to the parties, chosen for the team. Everyone loved Rachel. But poor Leah, no one hardly even noticed her. One day, their cousin Jacob came to stay. Jacob stayed a long time working for his uncle Laban. One day, Laban said to Jacob, Jacob, I've decided to pay you for your work. What do you want? And then a sudden thought struck Laban. He says, how about one of my daughters? Jacob looked at Rachel. Then he looked at Leah. Who would he choose? Of course, he chose Rachel. He says, I'll work seven years for free, Jacob said, if I can marry Rachel. So Jacob worked seven years, and at last his wedding day arrived. But that night, Laban played a nasty trick on Jacob. Instead of sending Rachel to the wedding to marry Jacob, he sent Leah. Now, in those days, they didn't have electricity, so it was dark in their tent. And besides, women wore veils, so you couldn't see their faces properly. So Jacob suspected nothing. But the next morning, Jacob woke up and screamed to his horror. His new wife was lying beside him. But it wasn't Rachel. It was Leah. Jacob jumped out of his bed. Laban, he cried, you scoundrel. But Laban said, work for me another seven years and then you can marry Rachel. So Jacob worked for Laban another seven years. And at last, Rachel became his wife. Now Jacob had two wives. But of his two wives, Jacob loved Rachel the best. No one loves me, Leah said. I'm too ugly. But God didn't think she was ugly. And when God saw that Leah was not loved and that no one wanted her, God chose her. He picked her to love her specially, to give her a very important job. One day, God was going to rescue the whole world through Leah and Leah's family. Now, when Leah knew that God loved her in her heart, suddenly it didn't matter anymore whether her husband loved her the best or if she was the prettiest because someone had chosen her. Someone did love her with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. So when Leah had a baby boy, she called him Judah, which means this time I will praise the Lord. And that's exactly what she did. And you'll never guess what what job God gave Leah. You see, when God looked at Leah, he saw a princess. And sure enough, that's exactly what she became. Because one of Leah's children's children's children would be a prince, the prince of heaven, God's son. And this prince would love God's people. And they wouldn't need to be beautiful for this prince to love them. He would love them with all his heart. 
and they would be beautiful because he loved them, like Leah. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Thank you, God, for giving us this book and placing yourself in it. May we seek you and find you and be changed by you. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, Crossroads. It's great to be with you today. We are Brian and Kimberly Medallia, and we invite you to join us as we partake in the Lord's Supper. As we come to the sacred meal, we come in humility, we come on our knees because of our sin, because of the sorrow and pain that it has caused, and also because of the fact that this sin caused Jesus to die on a cross on that fateful day. Please take a moment and let these truths wash over you as you take time to repent of your sin and to ask God for forgiveness. Please join me in this moment of silence. Brothers and sisters, after Jesus had given thanks, he took the bread and broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Take it and eat. And while the table brings mourning over sin, this meal also brings tremendous joy. Jesus stands as judge, and yet if we repent, we are forgiven. We are washed completely clean. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sakes, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This verse from 2 Corinthians 5, 19-20 promises us that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. What good news that is, that despite my wretchedness, the Lord can make me righteous. Please take a moment to revel in that incredible truth. Praise the Lord and give him thanks for his tremendous sacrifice, mercy, and grace. Please bow with me now. And in the same way, Jesus took the cup, saying, this is my blood shed for you. Take and drink. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. Go forth with joy, Crossroads. Be blessed. Oh
taking communion every every week together kind of together um so next week we thought about uh this sounds kind of funny right away when i say it but a drive-through communion so yeah having church like normal uh here on sunday morning and then opening it up to you and your families if you want to pile in the car from 12 to 1 30 next sunday uh kind of just line up here in the in the church parking lot and uh, the pastors and staff will be here to kind of just meet with each car and pray for you and do communion. And who knows, honestly, how that'll go, but we're excited about it and would love to see you and serve communion in that way. So, yeah, and again, you don't have to do it. Uh, it might just be more meaningful for you to do it at home, but we're going to try it. So, might see some of you next week. All right, that's what that's what you wanted me to say, right? <laughs> All right, guys, uh, until next uh, next week, love you. Thank you.